Hi, welcome to MedTech for Beginners, the place to come if you want to know more about how to bring new health and care innovations into the UK market. Hello everyone and welcome to MedTech for Beginners. Today's interview is with Vicky Munro. Vicky is a senior associate at PIMS Consultancy Limited and she has got many years experience working in health economics. I was absolutely thrilled when Vicky joined our team because health economics is such a vital element in market access for a new product. And I think Vicky can explain the wherefores and whys of that far more uh, succinctly than I can. So welcome, Nikki. Nice to speak to you today. Hi, it's great to be here. And yeah, I've, I've actually been around for a long time. I've been in the health economics world for a lot, quite a long time. I did my master's in health economics at the University of York in 94-95 and been working in the health economic and market access field ever since. So that's quite a long time, <laughs> almost 30 yes. years. Yes, I joined the pharmaceutical industry in 98. So, yeah, we're, we're quite close on these things. and um, We're showing our age. Yeah, I know. The thing was, I actually had a previous career as a civil servant. <laughs> Yeah, I, did, I, I did finance work previously as well. So we've definitely shown our age. Yeah, really old. <laughs> so we've had a bit, a bit of a chat about health economics, obviously. And one of the things that sort of came to the forefront and something I quite often think about in market access from my perspective is how the environment has changed over time and how regulation change and changes and how that impacts on the whole structure of what you need to do as you're bringing a product to market. So you've just said when when you started with your masters, we're looking back in the, in the 90s. So from your perspective, how have things changed? Oh, they've changed so much. So when I started, as I said, my master's was 94, 95. NICE didn't even exist. So, you know, NICE is a, a big player, not just in the UK, but internationally in terms of, you know, health economics and market access. It didn't even exist. It started in 1999. So um, when that happened, I was working in consultancy for a small consultancy company, you know, doing some work. But there wasn't so much health economic work been done and what we were doing was a lot simpler we were trying to provide health economic arguments to support product uptake to support marketing so it wasn't about reimbursement then um, whereas now you know the bulk of what I think we're doing is reimbursement because it is such a big thing and obviously we we do think about life cycle but that reimbursement part is really really huge and I was saying to you that, you know, I remember NICE starting in 1999. I think at the time, if I recall correctly, PBAC was in existence in Australia. I think maybe that had started around 1996, but don't quote me on that because, you know, this is come, coming out of thin air. But what I remember it was Sir Michael Rawlins was heading up NICE and he was around for a long time. And I remember the very first appraisal technology appraisal was for Relenza which was an antiviral for flu um, for GSK and NICE basically said that Relenza wasn't cost effective so they didn't recommend it and I think that caused kind of uproar particularly for GSK because you know they were the first company having to go through this process 
And then for NICE to say that their product wasn't cost-effective and they didn't recommend it for use in the NHS was a really big thing. This is the first time that it happened. And GSK threatened to leave the UK. It was, you know, it was political. It was big. It was, whereas now lots of products aren't recommended for use in the UK. It's, it's you know, that happens a lot now or they get a restricted recommendation only in certain groups of patients. So I think that's that's a big change. I think back in 1999, I think it was a shock. It was like suddenly there was this body that was going to decide if your product could be used within the NHS. And, and I think the other thing about it, particularly with NICE, is that NICE select products to review. So it's not like, you know, Wales and Scotland where they pretty much review all products unless they meet the exemption criteria. So it also felt a bit like, oh, gosh, if NICE selects your product and they don't recommend it, this is not good. So, yeah, it was really political. So I think that was a big change. I don't know if you remember that in those days. Yeah, I do. I, I do remember to a degree, but I was I was out on a on a keen sales team at the time, so we were just like focusing on getting sales in, to be honest. But um, I do remember Relenza. Um, yes, absolutely. And I think I've had previous interviews and conversations around Nice and about regulatory approval. But what you're talking about here is something where we're talking about reimbursement, which is another level to NICE. I've said before, you know, it's quite a scary thing to go before NICE to to put in for a a NICE appraisal. And as you said, the consequences can be as negative as they can be positive. So you could already have a product out there, could be being used in hospitals. You have a NICE appraisal and suddenly they go, actually, we don't think it's suitable for use in clinical practice for trial work only or for a very select group of patients. So that can be quite scary. But we're not just talking about the evidence of efficacy or accuracy or precision. We're talking about return on investment, basically, which is cost per quality, to my understanding, as a non-health economist. So could you just explain to the listeners who probably haven't even considered health economics as part of their product pathway. What is cost per quality and why is this so important? Yeah, and good. And I'll just take a step back before I come to the cost per quality. And I think the whole thing was, you know, regulatory is about showing that a product is safe and efficacious. So the product works. And reimbursement is really this additional hurdle. It was called the fourth hurdle at the time. It's like, Now, not only do we have to show our product is safe and efficacious, we also have to show it's cost-effective too, in the sense that if the NHS is spending money, it needs to know that it's getting good value for its money. So that's really what this whole cost-effectiveness thing is about. Us as individual consumers, it's something that we should really be thinking about too. And, you know, any purchasing decision we make, are we getting good value for our money? Like how much are we going to use this product? Is it going to bring us joy, a lot of joy, um, in a Marie Kondo kind of way. So I, I think this whole concept of cost effectiveness goes way, way beyond health economics. So how do you show cost effectiveness? Because cost benefit analysis is putting everything into a monetary term. So how do you value an, an, an outcome? And different products work in different ways. So for example, you know, Relenza, we mentioned Relenza, uh, 
a flu antiviral. So what are the benefits of using that? Well, obviously reduction in symptoms. It could also reduce number of hospitalizations. And then maybe we look at, I'm trying to think, maybe another product for maybe cardiovascular disease. I don't know, maybe a statin. I mean, you and a statin works in a different way. You're not really having symptoms. So it's not so much reduction of symptoms. It's more about, you know, long-term, pretty much improval in survival really from using a statin because it reduces cardiovascular events downstream. So they're very different. So it's kind of like, how do you measure the outcome in these products were very different? And so this concept of a quality was devised and a quality stands for quality adjusted life year. And so what a quality does is it takes into account both mortality and morbidity. So it's kind of the quality, morbidity measured in terms of quality of life so it's quality of life and survival really and it puts it into a single measure and the great thing about the quality is then that you can then compare products or interventions in different disease areas because they can all use the quality as an outcome measure so a product that really only impacts morbidity or you know quality of life well, you'll get a benefit on the quality of life part of the quality, but if the product, say, like a statin, for example, where you don't feel different any every day from taking a statin, will more impact the survival side of it. And then you get some which maybe, maybe for a cancer treatment where, you know, the quality of, well, sometimes it works the other way, it works against you, but, um, you know, we'll take in, so yeah, it can work the other way. It's not always improving, it can decrease. So, then about that that trade-off between quality of life and survival so that's a great thing about the quality and that's why it's used it's been used for quite a long time now and because it also then allows you to compare interventions based on the cost per quality so it's like they can be ranked you know and the lower the cost per quality the more cost effective it is and one of the things about NICE they've never formally kind of admitted it it's not formally formally written in any kind of documentation it's assumed and and I think they've even you know kind of spoken to it a number of times is that they have this cost per quality threshold of 20 to 30 thousand pounds so if you have a cost per quality of less than 20 to 30 thousand pounds then your product is is deemed to be cost effective now that's changed a little bit over time because now there's some different quality qualities for maybe um more rare diseases, etc. Um, but I think the standard for uh, of around twenty to thirty thousand pounds per quality for your kind of standard intervention still exists. So that's really what a, a quality is, and yeah, it can be used across therapy areas. So then you can compare because if you've got a product where the cost per quality is twenty thousand pounds per quality, but another one is a hundred thousand pounds per quality, are you going to invest? And the one that's a high cost per quality because it's not such good value for money. Yeah. And because it's a quality adjusted life year, there's the, the point of is this going to extend life, for example, for four months in the case of um, some cancers? Is it going to extend life for four months and those are four months worth living? Or is it going to extend life for four months of misery and pain? Yeah. And I think. That's really important as well. It, it does take that element into account. And for those who are still sort of not quite got what a quality is, 
I've just talked about cancer treatments in my background. I did work in oncology treatments for a while. And, and you are talking about months there in some instances. I don't want people who are listening to this thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, someone with cancer has only got months. But some of the treatments that are, are brought before NICE are for people who are end stage disease. And what we're looking at is things that will extend life and give them a quality of life for a period of time. And sometimes that period of time that life can be extended for is a matter of months. So just in simple terms, how do we turn that into a calculation? Yeah, okay. So let's take, so let's say that you've got a treatment and it's going to extend someone's life by. Well, let's say that you've got two treatments and one of them people's life will be extended by two years and their quality of life is measured on a scale from zero to one. So one is perfect quality of life and zero is, well, they say death, but there's been measures of quality of life which have been negative, so they're rated as being worse than death. And let's say this two years that someone's going to live, their quality of life is 0.9 0.9 so that's quite a high quality of life year so how many qualities do they have so it's two years at 0.9 so it's two times 0.9 that's 1.8 qualities or an alternative treatment could be three years with a quality of life of 0.5 and the number of qualities in that instance is 1.5 so because it's three years times 0.5. So you've got two years times 0.9, 1.8 qualities, versus three years times 0.5, 1.5 qualities. This example shows you the natural fact the number of qualities is higher for the treatment that only has a two-year extension to life than the three years because during those two years, patients are in a higher quality of experience, a higher quality of life. So that's kind of how qualities work. I mean, you know, if I asked you the question, would you rather have two years at a quality of life rated at 0.9 between 0 and 1 or three years at a quality of life at 0.5, rated at 0.5? And, you know, you kind of think, oh, what would I want? But what a quality does is allow you to mathematically calculate it and then and then rate them. Thank you. That was really helpful. So... You did mention about NICE and how NICE can, a ruling from NICE can impact in more than just the UK. Um, So how is a NICE outcome used outside of the UK? Well, NICE, for a start, I'll just say that NICE is actually for England and Wales, but Scotland will um, ask if, if it's had a NICE evaluation and often refer to it. But one, you know, I've worked on reimbursement submissions for other countries. And one other thing, I mean, obviously, they talk to one another. This is another thing. The reimbursement agencies across Europe and across the world talk to one another. But the NICE appraisal definitely has a bigger impact than appraisals from other countries because it's incredibly thorough. I mean, if you work on a NICE submission, it's incred- it takes a long time. It's time-consuming. And NICE is very prescriptive about what you need to do in terms of, you know, how you develop your model, the things you need to do. So what we find is that, you know, other reimbursement authorities around the world will ask, what did NICE have to say about this? And kind of take that into account. So NICE definitely has an impact beyond the borders of the UK. And um, health economics isn't just about getting through NICE. So thinking about the life stages of a device or product 
how soon in that life cycle does health economics start to play a part? Well, earlier and earlier, when I first started working in health economics, you know, way, way back in the 90s, it was, and this is pre-NICE, it was more about supporting product uptake, so market access, and providing some health economic arguments to support that. That's really what we were doing. And the models were not sophisticated, etc. And then kind of NICE came along. And then I think the focus really became much more about reimbursement. Now, as a health economist, we still do post-reimbursement health economic work. We we work over the life cycle. So new products become available. There's new comparators. When you do your submission to NICE, it's against standard of care at the time of asking for reimbursement. But new data become available, so you're constantly updating things. Maybe going back and doing subgroup analysis, you might be doing another thing that's done a lot now. And even NICE want real-world data. They want more real-world data about the disease area, but you can also, you know, do registries and things like that to get real-world data and then do cost-effectiveness analyses of those. But I think when I first started, we were just kind of given the phase three data, you know, and do a health economic analysis on this. But obviously what happened is that the phase three trial was designed for regulatory approval. And often it didn't include health economic endpoints. So we'd be trying to do a health economic analysis and not have health economic endpoints from the phase three clinical trial and then get criticised by NICE for, for not including that, right? And we'd have to be making assumptions about it, which NICE wouldn't accept. So one of the things that's definitely happened over time is inputting into the design of the phase three trial. And that is pretty much mainstream now. I mean, sometimes it's a fight to get all the economic endpoints you want in there because we can't have everything, so we need to have you know, the must-haves and the nice-to-haves, so it's kind of separating them out. But, you know, I've, I've also input into some phase two trials, sometimes because companies will be trying to get regulatory approval based on phase two data. Um, sometimes that happens. I've also been involved with a couple of companies at the development level. So when they're looking at you know, the development pipeline and what potential even molecules or compounds that they can bring forward because, you know, companies will usually have lots of these. I've kind of gone out and done like a market access assessment of that particular therapy area and what the potential is to bring a new product to that therapy area. So I think increasingly health economics or market access is getting earlier and earlier. But yeah, definitely when I started used to be and prior to NICE and having to be reimbursement submissions, it was, you know, post-launch and um, using phase three data that had been collected for regulatory purposes. So it's definitely changed. There's definitely a lot more health economic input throughout the life cycle. So um, a lot of the companies that PIMS works with are companies that have a product um, that has um, got re- regulatory sign-off of some form, Um not normally um, to the point of NICE, but uh, to be a registered medical device or similar. And what we're then doing is we're saying, right, for this particular product, if you introduce this into um, the clinical arena of where you're working, it's difficult to say this because the, the areas we work in go from mental health to continents. So it's it's very, very broad, but the same seems to apply in that you need to have some sort of model, on a, in a lot of instances, some sort of model where 
you can sit with your potential customer and say, right, if you use this and you've got X number of patients, it's going to save you this amount of money. Now, that's making it very, very simplified because we have to sort of find what the patient pathway is, understand who, where all the inputs are, understand what the impacts are and where they come from. And then a model needs to be put together, which is why I'm so happy that Vicky is with us, because I don't make models. I really don't. I know how they work and I'm not clever enough to make them. So I know that you've got a lot of experience of doing this sort of thing, Vicky. Um, if somebody has got a new device in MedTech, what sort of information and data do they need to find or have ready to help their health economist to make such a model? Yeah, so obviously it's um, that's kind of a generic question. It depends on the particular, we're talking about devices here, it depends on the particular kind of MedTech um, device. But so... It, it, but it's really like, for example, if your claim, it's really based on your claim. So, for example, if your claim is you use our device, I don't know, you use it with a pharmacist and patients don't need to go to their GP. So they're talking about effectively one of their claims is we reduce the number of GP visits. Okay, we might increase some pharmacist time, so we need to factor that in. So if we want to do that, then we you know, need to understand is that, Every patient who won't need a GP visit or will some need to go back to their GP depending on maybe, you know, what the device does or whatever. So we need to understand how many GP visits will actually be reduced, whether it's one per patient or whether it's 80% of patients, you know, won't need a GP visit. So we need some understanding of that. We need to understand what impact that, say, for example, has on a pharmacist, how much of their time will that be used, how much will that will cost. Often I see these companies and they're making claims, you know, you'll save GP time or you'll have less hospital admissions or, or whatever the claim is. We need to be able to support that. So we need to have some kind of data that can support that. Because otherwise it's like, well, you're picking numbers out of thin air. How do you know it's going to be that much? So it's yeah, it's really based on the claims. And so, you know, when I'm talking to a company who's talking to me about the device and what the device can do, my first thing is, oh, and they say, you know, we reduce hospitalizations. I'm like, oh, that's great. So what data have you got to support that? And how many hospitalizations can you reduce type thing? So that's what we really want. And the problem is a lot of the time, particularly for devices, they don't have this data. But so there are things that, you know, we can do a study or a pilot or something like that to try and collect that data to make the arguments much more robust because we don't have that data, then we're based on assumptions. We sometimes can use assumptions, but they then need to be based on clinical opinion. So we'd want to talk to clinicians and, and and not just one, but a number of clinicians and get their views on it. And that sometimes can work, but it's much more robust to actually have data to show to show that and to support that. That's fantastic. Thank you, Vicky. So we're now coming to the end of our podcast for today. Anybody who has listened to this podcast and thinks, actually, we need some health economic input, please contact Vicky and myself through PIMS Consultancy, which is www.papayankeemikesierraconsultancy.co.uk. And if you're enjoying this podcast series and finding it helpful and interesting, please like and share with your friends. We'd like to get the word out there and bring the benefits of this to as many people bringing new medical innovation into the UK health market as possible. Thanks very much. Good to speak to you all. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it both interesting and useful. Please feel free to message us if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask or any requests for future interviewees or any particular aspects of MedTech that you'd like to know more about. We'd be happy to include them in future episodes. Our email address is info at pimsconsultancy.co.uk. That's info at papa, yankee, mike, sierra, consultancy.co.uk. Or you can find out more about this podcast by visiting pimsconsultancy.co.uk forward slash medtech podcast. Until the next time, bye for now.